Enterprise Digital Podcast with Ian Aitchison and Barclay Ray, navigating the ever-expanding service management maze. Hello, hello. It's the Enterprise Digital Podcast AI series. Again, episode two of that. Those of you who know us from the Enterprise Digital Podcast will know that I'm normally joined by Ian Aitchison and as ever, He's here clutching his trivia as, as we speak, or his factet of knowledge. Ian, how are you doing? Greetings, Barkley. I'm doing very well, thank you. Yes, very well. How are you today? Uh, I'm better than I was uh, after having fallen flat in my face a couple of weeks ago and, and almost broken all my ribs and teeth, but I'm fine now. So, yeah, good, good thing. And probably sobered up by now as well, which is good. No, too. no, no, no. Generally, I'm sober when I fall over, but this on this occasion, it was not. But anyway, I'm fine. Uh, do you like a Ikea Billy bookcase? I prefer an Ikea Sven bookcase. We all know the Ikea Billy bookcase, yes. right? I mean, it's uh-huh. very, very well known. Did, do you know the name of uh, Ikea's artificial intelligence uh, customer service bot that was introduced last year? Bent? No, it's Billy. They named it after the book. Oh, right. okay. Not very interesting. The interesting thing is about this, that Billy uh, was brought in and has taken over apparently about 47% of customer service contact, uh, which you might think sounds very concerning for all of those 8,500 call center staff at Ikea. But there's a fascinating news story. It came out last year. It's not very recent news, but it was kind of kind of missed in the noise, I think. Those 8,500 call center staff that were relieved from 47% of their work, they were all retrained. Uh, They were all retrained into design consultants for IKEA uh, and contributed to a 1.4 billion revenue stream that comes through their design consultancy. So I think that's a really interesting example. We may talk around this of AI coming into businesses and changing people's work within that business but not losing their jobs but enabling them to be reskilled and the business to grow and innovate interesting huh that is interesting i mean i i, I hopefully that will be positive 8500 design consultants sounds terrifying but i'm sure it's worked, it's worked for them i don't have any trivia i have various things i could rant about but i'm I, but i don't have the time i do want to move on and introduce our guests today we 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 we're we're overrun with multiples um as as befitting our ai series we have james finister again james hi how are you doing i'm fine i'm now trying to work out what nike design consultant does i've worked with them as a customer in the past i mean how many ways are there to screw a allen key into a uh-huh. they they, they pay James, they pay £25, a customer pays £25 for a 45 to 60 minute interior design advice video call with suggested product list. That's what they do. And they weren't doing that before. Thanks to AI, they're doing it now. So they're charging you to get recommendations to buy their products. I like it. It's like Lego. I mean, that's how Lego really moved massive. They they got their own customers. To be their own advocates and and salespeople and and it's gone through the roof. Guilty is charged, fair buffer. Yeah, we're also joined uh, for the first time in the in sitting in the background and taking notes and 
sniggering at us all. It's uh, Steve Cave. Steve, hi, how are you doing? Hey, yeah, I'm really good, thank you. Very well, happy to be here. I hope you take some 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 good notes today, and um, you can tell me you can explain what AI actually means afterwards, because I always just nod and pretend to uh, to know what I'm talking about. Um, and our our main guest today, our our exciting, enervating, and illuminating guest is the uh, is the wonderful Ollie O'Donoghue. Ollie, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, Barkley. I'm I'm pretty excited to be on your show. I've I've been asking to come on. I think for what two years now. I, I thought begging out, was more like it, but uh, yeah, okay. Begging begging is a decent description. It turns out all I needed to do was publish uh, an incredibly expensive study, and and then I'm in. So yeah, I just need to get things out. <laughs> you are indeed, um, Ollie. For those that don't know you, just just give us a quick a. a a, a skim a sketch of some of the things that you do because you are quite you have flown in eminence and and ascended to the the gods over the last few years is is that a polite way of saying i've bounced around a bit <laughs> which is which is the truth um so i so i guess our, our paths first crossed back in uh, my service desk institute days where i was the head of research okay. i've jumped in a few different analyst roles in in the intervening years and now i'm the head of uh, cognizant research which is you know as you would imagine a research organization embedded in cognizant well um that's fascinating and we are going to talk about some very current some very new hot off the ai machine hot off the press research uh, that you're just publishing now today so really excited about that um welcome to everybody and welcome to the second ai series podcast Okay, I am going to go straight to the point and then I'm going to try and not speak too much. I'm going to ask Ollie, tell us a little bit about this research. Some of it came out a week or two ago. I actually pushed it out on LinkedIn and it looked fascinating. It's all about looking forward with AI and you've just published some more. I know that's been presented at Davos and so on. So can you give us a sketch of that? And What sort of things are you actually finding and, and seeing and what's coming out of this research, Ollie? Sure. So I'll, I'll do a, a really brief sketch. This is a, a, a massive piece of research that's kind of, it's the cause behind my weight gain and receding hairline over the last six months. Um, we've just been focused on digging through huge amounts of data. Um, and to give you an idea of that scale, we we set about um, going through something called the ONET database, which is a, a, a US labor database that contains 1,000 jobs and the 18,000 tasks that those jobs do that powers the, the US economy. It's an incredibly labor-intensive exercise. We used all sorts of tools like AI and machine learning to help us do that process. But even so, you can't get past the manual bit, which is us going through and figuring out what, what we kind of think the impact will be when it comes to generative AI on those tasks and jobs. Um, with that data, we then, well, our, our kind of long-term target was to understand what the economic impact would be for the US economy over a 10-year timeline. Um, and we have a number. It's, it's quite an exciting number, I think, which is if businesses adopt at the rate that we we think they will in our most ambitious schedule and uh, people are reskilled and retrained in the way that 
we would encourage they're reskilled and retrained, then the US economy picks up a value of about one trillion in GDP, which is uh, significant, right? So that's, um, I think that the stat we used in the report, that's roughly the size of the construction industry in the in the US today. So it's a, it's a big number. It's a pretty important number. But there are a lot of other factors that pull that number down or, or push it up. And the big one is what happens to the work that we do. So some of the roles that we've we've dug into have um, what we call exposure scores of 90% or more, some, some with a little bit less. Uh, and what that means is that 90% of the tasks that they do during their day could be automated by generative AI um, to, a, to a significant extent. Now, those uh, high impact roles will be displaced. You know, it stands to reason. Yeah, you know, I think it was a, a great example that, that Ian used at the start, which is, um, the IKEA example, those roles would have been displaced. IKEA did, you know, what I would consider a pretty bold move and said, you know, we're going to keep those people, we're going to retrain them and they're going to add value as they are in other ways. But that won't necessarily be the case when you look at it from from an economic wide view. And that's where we get into some quite scary statistics. So uh, looking at the the numbers that we have, we think around 9% of the US workforce will be displaced in uh, that 10 year period, which is of course significant. And of them, uh, about 11% won't find work again. So 1% really is what we're saying. 1% of the US economy today could be permanently displaced, which obviously has a huge impact on productivity, GDP, quality of life, um, and, and potentially huge socioeconomic impacts. You know, if you have 1% of your population suddenly out of work, they might be a bit annoyed and you have to kind of figure out what to do and and, and how you go about making them less annoyed, whether that's through reskilling them and getting them back into work or something like that. So this all boils down to what, what we've kind of built up around it called the trust compact. So our view is that you won't be able to reach any of that one trillion, those those core productivity gains, those core economic gains that, that we talk about, um, without having a pretty clear trust compact with, with your employees, with customers, with society at large. And that's at a business level and a government level. And we have about four factors. And again, I think the, the IKEA example is, is a pretty good version of that, that we we ask businesses to, to, to think about. The first is taking care of their people, right? And I think that IKEA example is a, is a great example, you know, where they've, they've recognized what the impact will be. They've thought about it and they've figured a pretty good solution. Um, there's the reality, which is innovate or stagnate. I mean, um, just before we started, James, you mentioned a, a survey uh, that that I think we should probably talk about at some point in this, which is the, the reality is if you don't implement generative AI, you might be out of business anyway, right? So if some of your competitors are an AI native, as we're calling them now, suddenly interrupts and eats your lunch, then nothing you can do can can solve that challenge. So you kind of need to figure out how you're innovating or you're stagnating. There's the the degree to which you build confidence um, with transparency. So being really clear about what generative AI can do and more importantly, what it can't do. And I think we've we've had this conversation with different other forms of automation. I, I did a study a while back, back when I was an analyst, where the Shared Services Center at NASA said their biggest hurdle actually was showing executives what RPA can do so they could rein them in, kind of calm them down a little bit so they didn't go off and replace kind of 50, 60% of their headcount with a technology that just couldn't do the work that those people were doing. And then the final one is is putting those AI gains to good use. And we we provide a, a variety of different um, examples where, for example, the, the additional tax benefit that you would gain from that economic productivity boost 
could be reinvested in the reskilling that you need to do to make sure that those kind of 9% that are displaced and that 1% that are, you know, really we're saying being permanently left behind aren't permanently left behind. Um, but I'll, I'll pause there because like I said, we've been living and breathing this study for six months now. So I could, I could talk about it endlessly. I'll jump in and say it's a very impressive uh, document and study. Um, <laughs> the quantity of work and effort you put into it and the presentation are really very good. So that's my first feedback on it. Great job. Thank you. Can I ask you something that you skimmed over at the start there? You, you talked about the score, exposure scores. And I don't think in the document you list out the roles that are exposed, or maybe I didn't see it. Can you can you tell us some of the roles that you saw being most exposed, 90% plus, by these changes? What sort of roles would we be seeing affected by that? There, there are a couple of really interesting trends playing out, right? So, so there. I mean, the first one is knowledge workers are, are going to be hit hard by this, right? That's that's the reality. I don't think that's going to come across as, as as anything shocking to anyone on this call or anyone listening, right? It's it's kind of our, our expectation. So, anything where, and this is the crudest way I could describe it, if if you are in a digital form or a physical form, passing a piece of paper from someone to another one, adding value in whichever whichever way you do with extra analysis or, or whatever it is that particular task is probably in focus that's that's the reality there are a vast number of other roles you know the creation of the document itself the picture that's on it um that are also going to be impacted but i think anyone in that bit where you're kind of passing that paper around is 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 going to see a high exposure score for the tasks where you're doing that activity um the other one is what, what we're starting to kind of think about which is the reversal away from stem dominance now when i was when i was going through school you sort of had to have a a statistical degree or a computer science degree or something like that and and the reality was hey if you want to be a, a well-paid um, equity trader in new york or you want to be a developer in california then you need a stem degree and that's where, what everyone wanted to do those roles have high exposure scores too because generative ai and and the developments that we think we'll see over the next 10 years in, in the technology and AI generally uh, will significantly impact a lot of the tasks that, that people in those roles do today. I think the highest exposure score we have, and these are what we call theoretical maximum exposure scores. So it, it, it doesn't take into account whether or not uh, businesses will adopt the technology who employ people in those roles, or, or in some cases, if society goes, no, you absolutely can't, you know, regulators come in and say, you absolutely can't do that to doctors or, or whatever it is. It's just, could the technology impact the role? Um, the highest are statistical analysts. I think that they've 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 the highest um, exposure score, which which we detail in the report. But even chief executives, and again, this is one of the really big findings for us. Uh, chief executives, C-suite executives, have an exposure score of of twenty five percent. So about twenty five percent of the tasks that chief executives do today could be um, automated or assisted away. Is is a, a strange turn of phrase, but it's, it's one that we've used by generative AI. It doesn't necessarily mean we'll have you know, a quarter to less CEOs, they'll just be doing other things. And that's probably... I've certainly heard that, that lighthearted phrase used many times that the CEO of the future will be an AI because it's you reach that point where it is very logically but complex decision-making, not driven by emotion, but driven by what will achieve the best for the business. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting to hear that very much. Also, so. well, yeah, we can come back to that in terms of culture and things like that. Ollie. Real question for me, this 1% of people at risk, are they easily characterised? Have you described them just? Or is there an age element, for instance, or a even a social economic element of 1% at risk? God, that's a great question. That is, that's a really tough one. So um, 
it's it's across the board, right, in, in a variety of, of different roles. We didn't do a tremendous amount of digging into different demographic groups, um, but it is modelled on economic shocks from a variety of different sources, whether it's a new technology coming in or, you know, the financial crisis or, or something like that. What happens to the people that are displaced? How many of them find their, their way back into work? And what's the average time, which is how we came up with those numbers. We have uh, another piece of analysis that goes a little a little bit deeper into this, which is where we assign friction scores to different occupational groups. And what we looked at was the type of tasks that are being automated away or impacted across the economy and the relative availability of similar tasks in similar roles and how far you had to move. So for example, if you were a statistical anal- uh, analyst that had an impact score of, of 90%, right? And you, you, you know, it's sort of curtains in that, that job. You've got to find something else. Um, your next available job might be a car mechanic right and that's i mean it's, it's not a an example from the research it's just to demonstrate the distance you might have to travel which means you have quite a high friction score i.e., you have to retrain it's a long-winded exercise potentially an expensive exercise too uh, which means you have, you have high friction score and the higher your friction score is the more likely you are to bow out of the economy altogether there are big groups occupational groups that um if i was an economic policy maker looking at this that's where I'd want to focus a lot of my attention when it comes to reskilling. So anyone in uh, general administration, which is one of the occupation groups in the ONET database that, that we analysed, has a high exposure score and qu- quite a high friction score. So that is where you're going to see a lot of, um, I mean, I, I can't think of the right word, but turmoil perhaps is, is the best word. It's the, the first one that, that jumps to mind, where you'll see a significant number of those groups um, displaced and a chunk of those displaced never finding their way back into the into the working world so, so we're almost talking about like in the uk i'm thinking particularly uk here you know our, our post-industrial model where the traditional male worker ceased to be breadwinner it became focused on on call center and yet now suddenly that call center population might be people most at risk it's quite a scary message it is. It is. And I mean, it's it's a wake up call, we hope, for the for the people that can mitigate the impact, because that's the reality. And, and there are a lot of um, NGOs and startups trying to figure out how they can drive retraining at, at, at my, the organization I work for. We've we've announced uh, a program that aims to retrain a million people. And I, I think that the sheer scale of, of reskilling and retraining that we'll need and also the um, the way that's designed to keep up with the pace of change, because we're just talking about one vector of change, generative AI. Who, who knows what tomorrow's will be or next year's or, or whatever it is in 10 years' time. The one thing that I would say is, is reassuring, so if anyone is panicking, um, this is this is over 10 years. And I think a lot of the technological building blocks that businesses will need to implement to even realize uh, the productivity benefits of those exposure scores, so effectively that, that, that you know, 90% value that they're getting from from a from a, a statistician um, for 10% of that person's labors is quite far off into the into the future, right? So you're talking about a whole new tech stack underneath it before they can even even think about you know 20%, 30%, let alone 90%. Um, that's all factored in, in in another area of the research where we look at what we call the predicted exposure scores, which is where we water down those theoretical maximums with business adoption, how long it takes to train people. You know, if you, the idea that you could just wake up one morning and 90% of what a statistician does suddenly is done by by a piece of equipment. And all of the people that work around that statistician in the business just go, oh, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, we know how to interact with this. That's not a problem. That takes a tremendous amount of time, tremendous amount of training and um, 
quite honestly, the business case for it just might not even be that strong, which is why business adoption for us isn't predicted to be as rapid as, as perhaps a lot of people are, are thinking. So, I, I mean, at our uh, most aggressive business adoption rate, uh, we're talking about 50, uh, sorry, 46% of businesses across the US economy adopting the technology in 10 years. So by, by 2032, 2033, I think a lot of people think it's going to be instant because of our relationship with ChatGPT, which is free and web-based. But a lot of the technology we're talking about will be proprietary. It'll be built into ITSM tools or ERP solutions or whatever that'll take a huge amount of time. And, you know, as the case is, be incredibly costly. I mean, the technology itself is incredibly expensive to run. So, um, you know, if you're a farmer deciding whether or not you want to give someone generative AI or buy a new tractor, the tractor is probably going to win for quite some time. There's, there's an interesting uh, direction um, as we're talking about the the 1%. Often these conversations head towards, and I don't know if you cover this in the report, uh, UBI, universal basic income. Do you, do you reference that concept at all? Uh, we we don't. So it's, it, it's certainly formed uh, um, the thinking around uh, yeah. one of the recommendations, which is putting those gains to good use. Now, we we tried not to lean too heavily one way or the other right it's, it's a deeply political issue there are a lot of um, sociologists economists politicians saying yes it's the right thing to do yes it's the wrong thing to do we also talked about um Bigovian taxation so taxing the, the the real beneficiaries of this whoever they may be whether it's the tech giants or the um suddenly the superpowered workers who can who can get crazy salaries whatever it is figuring out how to tax them to offset the externality which is labor market disruption that'll vary i think by by geo to geo. I mean, there there are there are geographies that are banning it already that want to tax everyone. There are others that are just saying, do what you want. We want the innovation gain, run run riot. We need the productivity gain. I think what'll be interesting is, um, and we do cover this a little bit in the report, is that productivity at a national level for most developed nations is, has been pretty lackluster over the last ten years. So, um, if they can get even a portion of the total factor productivity gains that we're talking about, it's going to be very attractive to do that, regardless of what the the long term impact is. Because you know, if you're if you're chasing two percent and you're getting one point five percent, and according to our research, you could get three point five percent on top of all of that, then suddenly you're uh, you're doing quite well as far as productivity growth is concerned. Yeah. So that that's kind of a concern we echo in the report is there needs to be balance between the two. You know, if you run straight for the in this instance, one trillion, it's likely that'll be dragged down quite rapidly by the again. I'm using the word turmoil, but the you know the labour market um, disruption because you know those people who are disrupted aren't paying tax. They're not buying things. That means other businesses close and they stop paying tax. Um, so it's it's not really a clear cut. Hey, this is just going to be one trillion guys. You know, let's plug it in now and everyone's a winner. There, there's a lot of deep thought that needs to be put into place. But first of all, thank you for introducing me to the term externality which I'm going to put into every every um, presentation I do now. How should organisations react to this then? What should we do? The hard part is really understanding where everything fits. So, so we, we have this piece of information in front of this data set where, uh, you know, I have to be careful what I say here because in theory, and that's that's definitely the right word, word to use, theoretically, we understand all of the tasks driving the US economy as far as this, this database is concerned and what they'll look like in 10 years time when generative AI is, is adopted at, at scale. Now, if every business has something similar, they can understand what their their kind of path over the next decade looks like, the people they need to reskill and retrain like IKEA did in that, in that fantastic example, their next wave digital transformation journey. 
I don't think in uh, a lot of the conversations that we're having uh, as, as part of this research that anyone's really there yet. We're in a very experimental phase. And again, we, we talk about this in the research. We're in, there are kind of three phases that we see playing out. The first one is this, this um, deeply experimental phase. Uh, I think a lot of businesses are adopting something of a wait and see approach. There's good reason for that. Um, you know, if you're going to spend billions of pounds transforming your business and then find out from a regulator in two years time, you've got to unpick it all then you're going to be in trouble. A lot of organizations learned that the hard way through cloud where they kind of went all in with a with a hyperscaler and then were told, nope, that's crazy. You can't do that. Unpick it all, please. Uh, so, so there's a big wait and see uh, approach at, at play right now, but people are experimenting. We think after about three years, so I, so I guess in our model, it's around 2026, there'll be a clearer regulatory um, environment. It'll be clearer what the technology can do and what the development roadmaps look like amongst hyperscalers and, and the SaaS guys and, and, and all of those um, different players in the space. And businesses can really ramp up their adoption. And the hope is they'll have a clearer view of what the impact will look like on their business. I think right now everyone's just still trying to, trying to figure it out. Um, but, but I think mapping out, I'm going to lean into your example, Ian, from Ikea, because I think it's just a great example. I hadn't heard about that before I came on this this call, is exactly what organizations should be doing right now, is looking, well, do you know what, if it can do that and we're going to lose all of our statisticians, then what do those people do? How can they add value? Right, there's a shortage. opportunity, isn't it, to do more than they can currently do because everybody's busy doing their job. Suddenly they've got people that could grow the business in faster, new and innovative ways where they couldn't before. Yeah, and there, and there are huge opportunities in, in in a variety of sectors. I mean, healthcare is one. Again, I think we called that out in the report, or at least in, in one of the, the, the reports that are coming out soon. Every healthcare jurisdiction, but by and large, every healthcare institution on the planet right now has two problems. They can't get enough doctors and, and medical staff, and uh, delivering the healthcare services they need to deliver, deliver are becoming more and more expensive, and that's not going to reverse, right? So there are two, two massive challenges that are taking up everyone's time. Like, how do we with the demographic shifts that we're seeing at a global level, how do we deliver healthcare services in a way that is um, fair and practical and cost effective? And how do we, I guess, in effect, get the most value from the highly skilled people that we have that are finite? Generative AI, we think in, in some healthcare roles, so take, for example, a, a, uh, I think we use a, a family um, doctor in, in America, uh, around 33% of their their role could be automated by generative AI. So in theory, they could see many, many more patients or do many, many more high value activities uh, for the same cost to, to an extent that, that they do right now, uh, which is huge, right? So that's, that's a huge game for the healthcare sector. Uh, it also means that, that other people in that ecosystem, so um, nurses, administrators can also use the technology to perhaps ease the burden of the doctor even more or take up other higher value healthcare activities. And suddenly you've kind of solved one of the biggest problems in that sector. Now, again, that's kind of a rose tinted utopian view. But the reality is if you use the technology in the right way, uh, with the right strategy and with the right thinking, you can achieve those goals. It's also quite easy to roll out a, a generative AI bot that just annoys all of your patients and has every regulator going, well, you can't touch this ever again. Uh, it doesn't doesn't take long for, for it to go from one to the other. So, Ollie, is, is, is there, early on, you used the word knowledge manager, knowledge worker. But actually, there's two kinds, aren't there? There is the deep knowledge worker, which is the good doctor, the good GP. And there's the other knowledge worker whose job is simply passing on algorithmic almost knowledge isn't there so is your vision that the one will become more important and the other one will be less important in the same way that you know accountants accountants used to be people sat there by 
calculating machine. They're not anymore. Your, do you know, your accountant example is is great and annoying for me because that's exactly the example I was about to use. So, so in we again, we haven't covered it in this particular piece of research, but we are trying to understand what happens to specialists. So, so what does the the commodity value of their skills look like? Is it improved? Does it stay the same, or is it pulled down by all of those displaced workers suddenly being able to do much more um, and kind of moving further and further up the chain? And one of the things we're looking at is the impact of the calculator. Which, which sounds really silly, but before the calculator existed, a great accountant was someone who could do maths accurately, quickly, um, with, with no mistakes. The calculator came along and someone like me, who is awful at maths, could probably have a, a go at becoming an accountant, right? In, in, in that old skill set where it's just adding up and, and kind of bookkeeping. So the accountancy profession moved, moved further and further up the chain and now they play a more advisory role and you know do, do all sorts of other things. But the commodity value of that original accountant was pulled down by the calculator because more people could do it. So we're, we're trying to figure out which roles will be impacted in that respect. So which ones, um, uh, I, d- I don't know if de-skilling is, is the right word, but where um, the use of generative AI and the abundance of people combined with generative AI that can now do a similar role will pull the, the value of a, a real specialist down a bit. Great example is, is perhaps like a, a, a lawyer in a, in a small family firm. So if you have generative AI in a, in a, a I won't mention a brand name, but let's say a, a big database of case law and, and past judgments and, and all, all of that stuff. And you can use generative AI to mine that and find the best case law. And I know there have been some examples of this going catastrophically wrong, but if, if it's a trusted body, then you can compete with the big legal guys suddenly because you don't need 700 um, interns or, or, or graduates combing through all of the data, all of those those piles and books to find the right case. So you can do it almost instantly. So you have a, a, a legal professional that has a lower commodity value because of the infrastructure and tools they have available to them suddenly having a, a much greater commodity value because they can compete with the other guys. Now, if everyone does that, it pulls them all down a little bit again because now every lawyer can do that, and and the the core the core basics of being a lawyer is suddenly hey you know how to mine this database using generative AI. It may change some of the skilling that a lawyer needs to do, where being great at remembering things is suddenly less important because that's what a great lawyer does now is can on the spot recall hey this case happened and uh, that's relevant and that's why you should listen to me. You may not need that skill set anymore. You might just be a great orator. So, so you just convince people in the courtroom because you have this technological uh, backbone that helps you do the other stuff. The people who win might be the exceptions. They're the top 10, 5% who really do generally bring something extra to their job role, like a barrister. Yeah, and, and they may not necessarily, the ones that are the top 5% now may not necessarily be the top 5%. The, the, I guess the skills DNA that they have may not necessarily be the same. We, we, it was a joking thing. I always wanted to be an equity analyst when I was younger. I, I, I guess I watched some, some um, films where you know they, they were loaded, but weren't loaded to the point of being arrested. And that seemed just about the right gray area for me. Um, so I wanted to be an equity analyst, but I'm, I'm awful at maths. So there's absolutely no chance of, of that happening anymore. Whereas it's conceivable now uh, maybe with two years of development that i could have uh, a tool set where it checks my working out for me so instead i become like this relationship building equity analyst i keep my more like the analyst i am now where i I keep my ear to the ground and i talk to people i gather information and then i let the generative ai build that information that i I give it into the models and the heavy data stuff and suddenly i could be the best equity analyst really some fascinating stuff there and and i think we might have to ask you back ollie just to um just to continue this, but certainly reading the research will be good. 
One thing I just wondered, I mean, one initial reaction is, it's probably one of relief, I guess, because you came up with the first number, which was 9% of, you know, jobs or, or, or people in, in work. And actually, you know, if, if you read any of the current media, it's, it's like everybody's job's going or 60% or 70 or So there's a kind of an initial bit there that kind of goes, oh, right, okay, it's not as bad as, as it might be and we can recover a huge amount of money for the economy. I'm just interested in what was the on the curve of because you, you're up at the high level of those that would be seriously impacted. I mean, what's the sort of average? Was were most jobs impacted by twenty, thirty percent, or is there is there a big bundle in the middle? What, how did that sort of play out overall? So I'll, I'll give you the um, theoretical maximum exposure scores right because it's well it's just more words which is more fun for me but it's just the easiest way to relate data because otherwise we cut it by industry and all, all other stuff and gets mm. very complicated but there are about 10 percent of jobs have what we would consider a, a very low impact score so around five percent exposure score five percent of the tasks plus or minus the relative importance of those tasks will be impacted so it if anything it'll just sort of assist them in their day job you know and there might be things they don't want to do that that, that disappears 52% have a score of at least 25%. So that's where we would we would consider that quite significant impact. If you think 25% of what you do in your day job just disappearing overnight, that's a pretty significant impact. You may not lose your job over it, but if you're a team of 10 and all of you make that 25% gain and there's no rehiring, then you know the likelihood is somebody's going to get displaced. And then we have the really high impact scores. So uh, an exposure score, I think it's in excess of 25%. But, but that's that's a relatively small number. So that's that's a, a relatively small number of people have that high score. When it gets to the predicted exposure scores, which which is where we look at things like business adoption, those scores come right down. So again, that, that should be kind of a little bit of relief for people. This stuff doesn't just happen overnight. Businesses need to adopt. It needs to make sense. So so they 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 come right down to kind of, I mean, in, in some roles from a theoretical maximum of perhaps, let's say, 70% to perhaps 20 Right. That's uh, to me. That's really important because you know, on, the, on the one hand, we're saying that there's that split, and it's like for most people there will be some impact. Some a small amount will be minimum, and a small amount will be huge. But most people will have some impact. That's still the maximum predictions, and they're, they're the theoretical predictions. And then you've got the act or the sort of realistic ones will be that it will all be less than that because of change and time and people and all sorts of other criteria in, in the interim. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's a variety. I mean, right, right now, case in point, money is very expensive. So um, a lot of businesses aren't going to spend a huge amount of money over the next couple of years on, on this tech because, because it's, you know, it's, there's other stuff you want to spend your money on and interest rates are incredibly high. So that has an impact on, on the business adoption rate and, and a variety of, of other things. There are some industries, for example, where, um, and we did a separate survey that, that looked at uh, societal trust. So things like healthcare, which is an example I used earlier, we went out and we asked a thousand US consumers, would you be happy for, for AI to be involved in a variety of different healthcare contexts? And most people said, nah, not really. doesn't sound great to me. Um, we asked other things like, would you be happy for generative AI to educate your children at school? And again, kind of 30, 40% said, yeah, I don't mind. But, but most people said no. In our research on the tasks that teachers do, they have high exposure scores. So conceivably, you could use generative AI to, to automate away a lot of what teachers do. But the reality is, according to other piece of research, that most people would go, well, I, I won't 
take my child to that school or I won't go to that hospital if that happens. So that'll pull business adoption down. So by the time we get to the predicted exposure scores, we have a little bit more realism in what we think is is realistic for those roles on average. It's still likely that there'll be some businesses that, that drive very aggressive adoption and realize those theoretical maximum exposure scores. But by and large, it, it'll be much, much lower. Um, just in terms of time, can I just ask Ian and James just just quickly what your initial thoughts are on this and anything else you want to prompt Ollie on? And, and we will get him back on and probably have another podcast to discuss every aspect of this. But what's your thoughts initially? Uh, I think two of them, one being, as, as you alluded to there, Barclay, it doesn't sound as bad as some of the doom mongers maybe have been saying about this. I mean, if you look at 1%, who will struggle to find another job. That's one in a hundred. And obviously it's a lot of total people, but mm. that's 99 out of a hundred people who continue to, to, you know, gainfully employed benefiting from, from this. It doesn't sound as bad. That makes me sound really callous, doesn't it? Anyway, moving on. Um, I did find the, the chart in the report and the, the, the other takeaway from this, as, as you'd hinted to Ollie, the one role or position role job, which is uh, has the highest exposure score by a long way over everything else is in the area of computer and mathematical, which obviously the computer side is quite close to what we talk about in this podcast. So it has an absolute relevancy, I think, to uh, to all of us in our overlapping industry bubbles. Very interesting. Maybe we can discuss that in, in a bit more detail in the next next one of these. Thank you, James. What what are your initial I, I, I think it's it's two uh, two elements. Number one is what skill set do we need for the future, and, and that ties into Ian's point. I think you know the the IT person of the future might not be the type of STEM graduate we've come to expect it to be, but I think the other side of that is who is going to turn around to the educationists and organizations and say you need to train people differently for this very different future and my concern is you know whilst whilst all this conversation is going on we're still turning out traditional stem type graduates who may struggle going forward that's a good point uh i have kids in university now and i know they're not talking to them about the fact that what they're being taught in university may not be what they'll be working on in the near future I think that's a huge point because I mean, it, I, I mean, just sorry to interrupt. It, actually, it's been a point in our industry for a long time is that what computer graduates come out with and what they are asked to do in their jobs is, is, are two different universes, never mind planets. So now is the time that we really need to address that. I think. Um, I, think I don't know whether there's anything there, Ollie. Just in in summary to round off what you're. But what, what's what's your next thoughts on this? I mean, what, what's the logical outcome of this uh, in terms of either response or the next stage of it? So the, I mean, j- just to um, go on the, the education reskilling point for me, I think it needs to happen much, much, much earlier. I can remember when I was at school, suddenly um, everyone had to take a course to understand Word, Excel, and PowerPoint. Right? And it wasn't that I'm I'm not that that old. It wasn't that long ago, but it hadn't really been part of the syllabus. And then suddenly it was and every uh, year at my school did it and every school did it and i i want 
wonder if this technology, given how sweeping we think it'll be, should just become part of that early syllabus that's just like, hey, you need to understand how this technology works, what it means, how to question its output, how to consider what's out in the world that could be generated by generative AI that, that perhaps you should or should not believe in. And it, it, it doesn't seem like there's a, a lot of strategic thinking about that right now and, and where it should sit. Um, but in, in terms of what's next, I, I think we've we've kind of got three areas of, of exploration that we're digging into. So the, the tech stack that organizations need to reach the, those kind of productivity gains that we're talking about. It's not just about generative AI. There's a lot of other building blocks they need to get right to do that, in, including their operating model, their business model, their culture, but, but the tech stack. Um, we have a piece digging into the reskilling part. So we'll, we'll cover a lot, I think, about, about what we've discussed on this. And uh, another report digging into what we've called the vectors of distrust, right? So, so this other survey I talked about, like, what are the things where society goes, no, you absolutely cannot do that. I don't care how good the technology is or how cheap the product will become. You are not doing that. Uh, and what does that mean for the business adoption and the exposure scores that we have as, as part of this study? So, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot going on. Wow. Well, I mean, there's a lot going on. Um, you've given us a, a, a taste in 40-odd minutes there of some fantastic stuff. Thank you very much for that. And we'll put a link up as well um, when we get the podcast out. I really appreciate you coming on, uh, Ollie. Thank you very much. And I'm sure we will we will see you again. Thank you very much. You, How do people get hold of you, by the way? Uh, in what sense? If they want to contact <laughs> Well, um, in, in, the normal, in the normal sense of business contact, um, uh, I'm not a dating I'm, site. Okay? Well, I just wanted to be clear. Look, I'm a, I'm a classic millennial, so LinkedIn. LinkedIn's the easiest way. I'm pretty it's a classic millennial. LinkedIn. Okay, that's, that's good. We're all classic millennials here. James and Ian, thank you. We'll see you again on the, the next AI series. Steve actually has turned into uh, a bot uh, during the course of this, this podcast. Saying. But we'll see you again on the next next time on the Enterprise Digital Podcast. Thank you.